You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I sit down with a delightful and really incredibly knowledgeable journalist, Bethany McLean. You may not be familiar with the name unless you read bylines like I do. Bethany wrote one of the best-selling books on finance. Um, it was about Enron, the smartest guys in the room, the, the spectacular rise and scandalous fall of Enron. And you may be familiar with with her if you're a little older maybe you were a trader in the late 90s early 2000s bethany was her background is really fascinating she graduates with a degree in both english and mathematics ends up at goldman sachs uh as an MA uh analyst before she decides that's not what her future is going to be and she becomes a uh, a journalist she's writing for fortune and in 2001 publishes a article that at the time, Enron was a, a skyrocket, a moon, a moonshot. Really questions the valuation of Enron. She never alleges fraud. She points out how challenging it is to actually find out anything about uh, uh, about the company itself, and really just raises a lot of questions as to how can this company that's essentially positioning itself as a, a utility be such a fast grower and yet not reveal much to the investing public. And and really, that's where you start pulling the string on the sweater, and eventually the entire Enron House of Cards collapses. Uh, obviously, that's a, a hell of a way for a journalist to make a name for herself, bring down Enron. She is rather humble about this. She said it would have collapsed eventually anyway. You can't have that much fraud and, and get away with it forever. Uh, but her book is really well regarded. She's subsequently written a number of books, uh, one with Joe Nacera about uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which is really quite f fascinating. She wrote another book uh, on the, the financial crisis. Um, I find her to be tremendously insightful and really just a pleasure to chat with. I had a delightful time talking with her about all these things, and I, I think you'll hear that in the interview. I wish we had more uh, more time. It, the hour flew by really quickly. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Bethany McLean. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Bethany McLean. She is currently a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, but she is also the author 
of a number of fascinating books. I would say she's probably best known for Smartest Guys in the Room, The Amazing Rise and Scandalous Fall of Enron. Not only was it a award-winning book, but it also became a documentary that was nominated for the Academy Awards in 2006. Uh, she graduated Williams College and was a double major in math and English, spent three years at Goldman Sachs as an investment banking M&A analyst before joining Fortune uh, in 1995, where she pens a, a very famous article called, Is Enron Overpriced? that ultimately presaged the collapse of that company and a huge scandal. She's also the author of Shaky Ground, The Strange Saga of U.S. Mortgage Giants, and All the Devils Are Here, The Hidden History of the Financial Crisis. Bethany McLean, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me. So so that's quite uh, a fascinating background, and there's so many places to go. I have to start with double major English and math, which a lot of people are either word people or number people, you're both. Sign of a confused mind. But no, seriously, I don't think you should be one or the other. Somebody asked me recently, a random question, that what, what influenced me more, being an English major or being a math major? And I actually think my math major influences my writing in some ways more. Because math, particularly theoretical upper-level math where it's proofs, is very logical. And I was thinking, I, I don't have a very aggressive personality, but what makes me aggressive— And a very low voice. But, but what makes me aggressive is when A doesn't lead to B, doesn't lead to C. And I think that's my training as a math major. And then I can't stand it because I'm looking for the proof, right? Or I'm looking for the logic. The logic, And when the logic doesn't add up, that's what will make me dig in and, and ask aggressive questions in a way that perhaps isn't, isn't my natural personality. I, I suffer from the same condition, and it is a confused state of mind because <laughs> people are usually left or right brain. And if you're English and math, it means you're a little of both. And it certainly is confusing. So Let's talk a little bit about that takes you to Goldman Sachs in the early 90s, a really tough place to break in. How do you go straight from college to Goldman Sachs's uh, banking division? Well, at that time, Goldman Sachs had an analyst program where they hired people right out of college into their two-year analyst program. So there was a pretty established track for mm-hmm. for doing that. I don't think I was a natural candidate to be on that track. I would think uh, that's true. I didn't, I didn't know what investment banking was, quite frankly. I think I got a job because I was a female math major, and that was rare enough in one of those days that they thought, oh, she must be suitable. It's still relatively rare today. Less so. Less so so than it was. Um, I think I was not very suitable. I think Goldman was a tough place, and I think I made it tougher on on myself. In what way? I, I came unprepared. I, I would say you, you knew when you were going in that you were going to work 100-hour weeks and that the environment was going to be tough, but mm-hmm. I don't think I expected it to be quite as, as, as tough as it was. Um, and you, it, you subsequently called something from that era, the Goldman Sachs post-traumatic stress disorder <laughs> condition. Is that a function of how difficult and challenging a place right. it was? For which I got roundly and perhaps rightly criticized by veterans for, for appropriating a term. Um, but military it, veterans, for, not mili- Goldman mil- veterans. Military veterans, okay. not, 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 not <laughs> Goldman veterans. Um, but it was, it, w- it, was, it was a tough environment, yes. Mm-hmm. But, but look, I learned a lot. I'm grateful to the place in some ways. I think I grew up quickly there. I, I can imagine. So you're there for all of three years. And you say, hey, this is interesting, but 
I'm going to give this writing thing a, a shot, and you end up at Fortune. I actually said, I was on my way to business school. I was in, I had a roommate, um, and I thought, you know, I'm going to graduate from business school with a lot of debt, and I'm going to be right back where I started because I'm going to need to get a high-paying job in order to pay off the debt. Mm -hmm. So if, there's, if, if I want to do something else, now's the time. And I didn't grow up in a family that necessarily encouraged um, artsy things like journalism, but I thought, now's my time to give it a try. And if I don't like it, I'll, I'll go to business school. So I took a huge pay cut and got a job at Fortune as a fact checker. And they were willing to hire me back in those days of um, well-funded glossy magazines mm -hmm. with lots of time to fact check stories before they went out the door because I had my, my experience at Goldman. And they thought, well, she may not be able to write and she may not even be smart, but she at least understands what we're writing about. <laughs> so and this is really 1995, a little bit pre-internet, -inter not quite the right. same cost squeeze that we see today. Right. It was the last golden age of journalism. And so you're there for five or so years. When did you, before this story comes out, when did they move you to say, all right, kid, let's see if you can write? Sort of slowly, but I de still definitely, I did writing for the personal finance section, which at that time was sort of a backwater where nobody wanted right. to write, write for. So you could get in the door writing-wise if you were willing to do it. And I did this column called Companies to Watch where I was supposed to pick um, two stocks, every three stocks, every two weeks, which is when Fortune was published, that were going to double or triple or quadruple in value oh, over sure. the next six months. Oh, sure. No Throw problem. Throw a dart. That's oh, easy. But it was, it was easy because of all the Dot people who come by and pitch you, right? Right. The analysts and the portfolio managers and the and the company executives and you can write up these really charming little stories that are great, and then you watch as the stock goes in the opposite direction. So I began to realize that there was this whole Wall Street buy machine that I was inadvertently becoming part of, and I didn't want to be part of it. So in the last minute we have in this segment, you put out the piece is Enron overpriced, and you've worked with very famous uh, short seller Jim Chanos. A previous guest on the show, how uh, how did he approach you to say, hey, you're probably hearing a lot of positive stuff. Here's a story that might not be quite as savory as the others. So I met a guy named Doug Millett, who has since passed away, who worked for Jim. Um, and I hounded Doug mercilessly to talk to me and help me come up with ideas. And um, finally, Doug said, hey, you know, we're looking at this company called Enron. If you can tell us how it makes money, we'd, we'd love to hear it. And so that was that was actually how it came about. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Bethany McLean. She is a journalist and author of Smartest Guys in the Room, Amazing Rise and Scandalous Fall of Enron. And we were talking um, earlier about when the book came out, it kind of came out into a dot-com implosion void. And despite how well-regarded the book is today, not a lot of people really saluted when that came out. No, the book came out into a weird vacuum, I would say. People were really interested in Enron when it went bankrupt, right? And it was all over the front page of every paper. Everybody... Fastest bankruptcy in American history, right. biggest bankruptcy, right. just all sorts right. of... Uh... It was on the front page of the paper for a year. Everybody was covering. By the by the time our book came out in the fall of 2003, I think people had Enron fatigue, and I think sure. they had scandal fatigue, and I think we were all in that awful period after the dot-com implosion where the last thing you wanted was more bad news. Plus 
Plus, you had the WorldCom collapse, and you had the analyst scandal, and there was all these other things, and people might right. have been really like, all right. 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 So the book barely cracked the, the bestseller list, and then it, it, it sort of disappeared. But it continued to sell over the years, and actually, because it sold so well over the years, it ended up doing really well. But it was a slow thing, not a not an immediate explosion of interest. It, it ultimately ended up on a number of either college or business school uh, reading lists, so it's a regular... Literally required reading for certain students. I hope so. <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit about the initial article. Was it a function when you were reading it of overvaluation, or did you think fraud? I was too naive to think fraud. I think, it, but if you if you try to put yourself back at that point in time, we hadn't had fraud in a major American business Nothing for such size. a long time. Yeah. The idea that a company could be fraudulent, that the accountants and lawyers could have signed off on things, I just, I wouldn't have believed it. I remember reading through the description of the transactions that the CFO, Andy Fasto, was doing with, with the company and thinking, yeah, but the accountants and lawyers signed off on this. I must, I must just not get it. So these weird disclosures about these transactions that ended up being very central to the Enron story, I didn't even write about in my story. I instead focused on Enron's price and its P.E. ratio relative to the fact that people didn't understand its business, didn't understand how it made money, and that although the company said it wasn't a trading business because Jeff Skilling, the then CEO, wanted it to have a higher stock price, it was very much a trading business. So I focused on that. Fraud, I, I, think, it would have, I think it would have surprised me. Uh, well, it certainly surprised a lot of people, especially those who were long the stock. And um, right. uh, we mentioned in the previous segment, um, uh, folks from Jim Chanos's fund, Kinecos Partners, had you had reached out to them. This wasn't them shopping it around. You had tagged them. What made you go to them, of all people? Well, I think going back to this column I did, Companies to Watch, where I was selecting these stocks to write about, I felt burned. I felt like I was inadvertently becoming part of this buy machine that was suckering the American public by writing these positive stories about companies that were soon to implode. So I began to seek out short sellers and try to get to know them because I thought, mm -hmm. I need another source of information. You know, I'm tired of writing this glowing story about this company, not hearing another point of view only to have my phone ring and somebody start you know swearing at me on the other end being like you stupid whatever how could you not have known that this is did and, that really happen it did a couple of times and i thought you know i need to at least understand the other side of the story even if they're wrong i want to know it and then i can do my own thinking to figure out if they're right or wrong so trying to get to know jim was part of a broader effort on my part of trying to get to know people who were skeptics so that i could do things that were more accurate so with with the benefit of hindsight it seems kind of ridiculous that here's a company they they make money in ways that no one really knows. Their books are completely forget transparent. They're impenetrable. Nobody has any idea what's going on with that. How did the best and brightest of corporate America, of Wall Street, of the investment community not stop to think, hey, what's really going on here? How did everybody buy into the story, which turns out to just be complete and total fraud. Well, I think there are a bunch of answers to that. I think one thing is that we like the story, right? We all want to believe in the story of this company that's revolutionizing markets and that's going to make everybody a fortune. What could possibly be wrong with that? But I think underneath it, there are some things that are specific to Enron. I think Jeff Skilling was a really powerful personality and the mm -hmm. biggest, uh, a very intellectually convincing personality and charismatic personality and intimidating personality. And the most, um, the greatest compliment he could give you was that you got it, was that you, you were part of the team. You, 
you got mm-hmm. it. You understood what they were doing. And the biggest insult he could give was that you didn't get it. You're it, too stupid. You're too stupid. And so people became- We get it. We're the smartest guys in the room. You don't- Right. And, so and he would say this to people who were Harvard, MIT, Wharton, like really the best and brightest, and literally- intimidate them into thinking you're not smart enough to understand what we do. Right. And so people were afraid of feeling like that or being made to look like that in a crowd. And so I think a lot of people pretended to get it when they really didn't get it because they wanted to bask in Jeff Skilling's admiration. I think it happens um, far more frequently than you would think even today, though. I think it's a common phenomenon. It's the emperor's new clothes, right? To say the least. And we live with it today. That that is... um, Absolutely astonishing. So someone, I mentioned I was interviewing you, and someone said to me, and we talked about the article, and the question that this person asked was interesting enough that I'm going to pass it along. Assume your article never came out. Is Enron overpriced? How long could this have continued before someone would have noticed that the emperor was not wearing any clothes. I actually don't think that my article influenced Enron's trajectory at all. I think what my article did was pick up on the underlying skepticism about Enron that was growing in the marketplace. And in the end, what brought Enron down was a funding crisis, right? They couldn't roll their debt, and then the rating agencies rating agencies downgraded them, and that was the final nail in, in, in the coffin. Um, but I think my article highlighted, because it was at the, that time where it was becoming undeniable that the broadband business, for instance, was collapsing. And Jeff Mm -hmm. Skilling was continuing to say, this is a great business for Enron. We're defying the industry. And it was becoming more and more apparent that what he was saying was at odds with what everybody else in the industry was was saying. So I, I guess I... I believe it probably didn't. My article probably didn't influence the trajectory of events at all. I think it. I think it explained what was starting to happen. So at the time he was saying that you already had Metro Media Fiber go belly up. You had Global Crossing go belly up. They were spending thousands of dollars per mile to lay this dark cable that will eventually light up with all this content, which turned out to be true. Facebook and YouTube yeah. and all these things a decade later, but that was bought up for pennies on the dollar later. How can someone be so brazen as to make that claim in the face of collapse? Was it just, oh, those were poorly run companies and people bought into that? I think that Jeff Jeff was the ultimate stock salesman. He could sell Enron better than anybody else, and he desperately needed to keep the stock price higher high because all these complicated financial um, things Andy Fasto, the CFO, had uh-huh. built depended on keeping the stock price above a certain level. And if the stock price started to decline, all these losses would come back on Enron's balance sheet. So I think Jeff was very aware of the need to keep Enron's Enron's stock price high, um, and I think that was part of it—just sheer desperation. Um, to Enron was is, is a great example of you know he, the, the famous um, quote is Benjamin Graham that a stock and a company are two different things. Sure. And Enron's case, the company became the stock. To say the least. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Bethany McLean. She is a former Goldman Sachs analyst and Fortune magazine reporter who broke the big story on Enron ultimately writing a number of really well-regarded books. And and let's talk about a different book of yours, which is Shaky Ground, The Strange Saga of the U.S. Mortgage Giants. Now, I've covered subprime and I've covered mortgages. And whenever I talk about Fannie or Freddie, the two government-sponsored enterprises that handle most of the mortgages in the country, there are one of two reactions. Either people are furious and they want to shut them down and let's turn this over to the free market or their eyes glaze over and they lovingly slip into a coma never to be seen again. But nothing in the middle. 
What do you find when you talk about mortgages? I went to a housing finance conference that Goldman Sachs, speaking of which, hosted um, when, in the winter when I was working on the book. I guess it was last winter. And the Goldman PR guy said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm writing a book about Fannie and Freddie. And he looked at me and he said, well, no one's going to read that. <laughs> <laughs> and, Just, <laughs> and how's the book sales going? You know what? For what it is, so I published it through this upstart um, publishing press called Columbia Global Reports, sure. which seeks to write mini books. So it's not a long book, mm-hmm. but mini books on topics of global importance that are they are meant to be wonkier. So for what it is, it's actually done quite well. Okay, that's great. So it's uh, every time the conversation comes up, it's just so difficult. And it's amazing because mortgages. Look, anybody should care about Fannie and Freddie. I don't care who you are. If you have a mortgage, you or should care. Or if you want to buy a house, if you want to buy a house, you should care. If you just own a house, you should care about what the government's going to do with mortgage finance because the availability of financing determines the value of your house. And if you're in none, and homes are still, by the way, the most important asset to most Americans. To so the you, vast majority. And for if sure. you are in neither of those camps, but you care about the economy, you should still care about housing because it's still 15 to 20 percent of our GDP. And so whatever the government does- 20%, a full of fifth. So whatever the government does to resolve, we are still, housing is still, there was a great quote from Mariner Mariner Eccles um, back in the 1930s who said, housing is the wheel within the wheel of our economy. And it it still is. Makes a lot of sense. And so even if you care about the, just care about the economy, you should care about what the government does with Fannie and Freddie, ultimately. It's it's, it's a big topic. I I did a column- people don't care, you're right. (laughs) I, I did a column not too long ago. I moved a year ago. We bought a new house. And the experience with that house- the hoops you had to jump through in 2014, 2015 versus the experience with the prior house. We did, a, I recall doing a refinancing in like 05 or 04, where literally the guy would pull up in the driveway. He left the engine running, flung open the door, ran in with papers here, initial, initial, sign, sign. I apologize. I have a closing around the corner. Bye. Guy disappeared, left us with a check for $30,000, was gone. And I, I looked at my wife. Did that really happen? Contrast eight years later. Where, you know, I, I've had colonoscopies that were gentler and easier and less intrusive than than these sort of um, experiences. So that raises the question, why has financing the most important purchase most Americans make become so insane? Well, there are a bunch of answers to that. The fate of Fannie and Freddie, as most people know, is unresolved. They were put into a state called conservatorship during the dark depths of the financial crisis. It was supposed to be temporary. There they still sit. They're making lots of money. The government is using their money to reduce the overall budget deficit. I think it's a huge scandal, but that's... that's, And that's that's, been reported. That's That's not like a secret. But but that's out there. But the, the big problem is that the government's been schizophrenic in what it wants out of the mortgage market. So politicians, including President Obama, have said repeatedly, we want more private capital in the market. Mm -hmm. At the same time, they've done everything possible to discourage private capital from getting involved in the market again, witness the huge fines that big banks have paid. Um, For what, though? What what are the big banks paying fines for? Well, for for behavior for which they should pay fines. But nonetheless, if you realize suddenly that you, Mr. Bank, may have to pay billions of dollars in fines because you you screwed up on some lending to subprime customers, you're probably going to say, you know, I don't think I'm going to do that lending again. Let me push back on that a little bit because I know you've written about foreclosure gate, which yep. is one of my big pet peeves. Yes. As it turns out, if you actually commit fraud and take these signed documents and present them to a court, they're usually a penalty for, for lying under oath that way. And yet it seems there's been no consequence. One woman, one Agreed. mid-level executive who was just a irrelevant to the whole story uh, got prosecuted. 
But the vast majority of people who said, just make up documents, throw people out of the house, we'll probably get the right people. Agreed. Agreed. I'm not defending the big banks. Nonetheless, if you say, if if you penalize something for doing something bad, they're probably going to say, I'm not going anywhere near that bad thing in the future. And maybe we'll get there. But before we get there, the government has to figure out what its role in the market is going to be, right? Mm-hmm. And right now, there's no resolve about what the government's going to do with Fannie and Freddie. So the private market Is that a political function even, or an economic function? It's political function. malfunction. <laughs> <laughs> is that what it is? It's not economic? It's-, it, it's basically nobody in Washington knows what to do with these two companies. And so we have complete and total stay. Everybody knows we need Fannie and Freddie to keep providing a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage to the majority of Americans. Nobody really seriously wants to risk ripping that underpinning out from under the mortgage market and see what happens. And yet nobody can say, actually, we probably need Fannie and Freddie either. So we sit in this state of dysfunction, made worse by the fact that the government has gotten $200-plus billion in profits from Fannie and Freddie because they're seizing all the profits. And so what politician wants to get rid of that source of, of money? So I think it's 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 not a great situation. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Bethany McLean. She is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and a well-regarded journalist and author. Let's talk about one more book of yours, which I happen to have pulled off my uh, bookshelf. Uh, All the Devils Are Here, The Hidden History of the Financial Crisis, which you actually wrote with uh, Joe Nacera, who's a really interesting... uh... Joe was my longtime editor at Fortune, and Mm -hmm. he actually edited the Enron book. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I'm a fan of his only because I have big issues with the NCAA, and he's been, well, for many reasons, but most recently he's been torching them. Read his new book, Indentured. It, it just came out. It just came out. I he's give a plug absolutely, for absolutely he's absolutely I love the fact that these guys have gotten away with so much for so long and suddenly one person comes along and completely changes uh, you know the narrative. The story is something wholly different and that's it's nice having a free press. So let's talk a little bit about this book cuz it's really interesting. And and we could talk about a number of other columns that you've released following the financial crisis, some of which I find endlessly fascinating. Let's just jump right to this. What was the hidden history within the financial crisis? What do you think most people just don't realize that took place in that whole collapse? I think one of the most surprising things, okay, two of the most surprising things to me were the whole history of subprime lending, how it developed. So even sophisticated people tend to think of subprime lending as a phenomenon in the mid-2000s. But it really wasn't. There was the first wave of subprime lending in, in the, the 19, 90s. In the 90s. Yeah. And then the second wave in the 2000s, which was run by the executives of the the, the, the companies that, that per, first proliferated in the 1990s. So understanding how that happened and the regulatory response to it that made it, that made subprime lending something that no Nobody in Washington would would rein in. Mm-hmm. I think to me is 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 a really important part of part of this story. It, it's funny you said one or two things that people don't know. I have like lists and lists of things that people are always surprised at. One of the things that came up recently: Hey, how come it was that all Wall Street banks got killed in subprime, except one, J.P. Morgan? Why why is that? Because they had their subprime crisis in the early two thousands, and when they went to get out of it, there was actually buyers for their paper. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. A huge, a huge difference from 
everybody else. Right. But that's a real it's a really important part of the story for a bunch of reasons. One is because consumer advocates were going to Alan Greenspan, then the chairman of the Fed, in the nineteen nineties and saying basically, look, people are getting loans they can't pay back. Something's going wrong in the system. And Greenspan would say what a lot of regulators and politicians thought, which is that the market doesn't work that way. People banks lenders won't make loans. Banks certainly won't buy up loans and securitize them. Investors won't buy the resulting securities if the underlying loans aren't sound. A market economy doesn't work that way. And so I think he let his ideology get in the way of the facts, which I think about that a lot as a good as, sure. as, as a good as a good life lesson. But I think a lot of people did. Not not only did consumer advocates, but on the Federal Reserve Board was a gentleman named um, was it Bill Poole? I thought it was Ed Gramlick. That Ed Gramlick, that's yeah. right. Bill Poole is still around. Ed Gramlick unfortunately passed away. Mm-hmm. And Ed Gramlick, I think maybe Bill Poole did the intro to his book. That's why it's on my head. Ed Gramlick was saying, "Hey, the, none of these things make sense." I understand what you're saying, but look, here's all of your um, predatory predatory loans that are defaulting in these huge numbers. Right. And uh, amongst the many things that people don't realize, in 05, uh, I think it was the OCC issued an edict to the states that said, you cannot enforce predatory lending laws yes. against banks. That's our- It, it was it was preemption. And the OCC- Federal preemption, exactly. And, and the OCC thought that subprime lending was contained outside the banking system. And I think that's another huge lesson for the modern world. You know, our market, the global markets are a very complex place and people don't see all the interdependencies and interconnectedness until it's too late. And that's one reason why the financial crisis is still so relevant because people said, oh, the subprime lending thing, well, it's all these lenders, these these little shops out in California. And That's so who right. really cares? It's not infiltrating our precious banking system, but oh, yes, but it, it was. was. <laughs> That's right. One, one, Another one of the many things that people probably didn't know, when they were selling these 30-year mortgages to Wall Street to securitize into a new, new paper, um, they came with a 90-day warranty, like a toaster. Wait, I'm warranting that this 30-year loan against a, a house that could last 100 years That'll last three months. Uh, we promise they'll make the first three payments. How crazy is that? It's it's astonishing. It's completely astonishing. And it's interesting in light of Fannie and Freddie, as we discussed, because, as you know, there's been a whole political movement to blame Fannie and Freddie sure. and blame low income lo- and lending to low-income borrowers and homeownership for the financial crisis. And when you actually look at the history of it, I might have gone into my book thinking that was true. When you look at the history of it, then you see, oh, no, 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 this whole <laughs> subprime lending thing that started in the 1990s was enabled by Wall Street, had nothing to do with Fannie and Freddie. Right. It started outside. Fannie and Freddie. The other fascinating thing to me that I think most people don't realize about the subprime crisis was that it was not about home ownership. If risky lo- loans had been limited to first-time home buyers, we never would have had a crisis. It was cash-out refis. So this, this, so this, the crisis doesn't prove that giving mortgages to poor people is a bad idea, as a lot of people seem to think. It doesn't prove home ownership one way or the other. What it proves is that extending credit to people of any income level who can't afford to pay it back is a really bad idea. So I, I think that's another huge misconception and kind of an evil misconception about the crisis, right? So there's so many components to that. One is you have a a population that's not seeing their wages go up, especially in the 2000s when there's really high inflation. So flat wages, high inflation means your standard of living is falling unless you have a way to get more money and the cash out refis, which like Enron, it works as long as the price keeps going up. Once that stops... 
Well, when the music stops, that's where the real trouble comes. And you drive through Chicago streets and you see in the dirty snow a flapping banner from Chase that says, let your home take you on vacation. And you say, not so much. Take you on vacation, get you a big screen TV, buy you a new car. All standard of living things, and that's really eating your seed corn. But you're absolutely right. The underlying story is of the stagnation in American incomes, right, that was masked for a while by the creation of credit. And I think that's a huge underlying story that we have yet to see play out. Creation of credit, flat wages, and when people are talking about income inequality, there are two sides. Yeah, the top one-tenth of one percent doing great with stock market and, and all sorts of other things. But there's a huge swath of the country that's just seeing stagnant wages. And when you say to people who aren't used to having free money, hey, here's free money. Right. I mean, that story I mentioned about us doing the cash out refi. Yeah. So we got $30,000, starter house, replaced a, a kitchen. And I know neighbors who were, why is there a portion you're little starter house driveway. Well, well, because I can. And it gets to another huge issue about our society, too, which is that a lot of people aren't financially sophisticated enough to understand these products. So they assume if a lender is giving them the money, then the lender is, uh, uh, the lender knows that they can pay it back, and the lender has done the work. Now, that's obviously a really bad assumption, but lenders- Especially and mor- with no doc mor- loans. Mortgage brokers are trained to be your friend and say it's right. all going to be okay in the end. So I'm a big believer in personal responsibility, but I think responsibility has to go two ways, and Both. you can't put it all on people. People and then have financial services institutions out there selling bad products that they're trying. It, it just it doesn't work that way. Hence, Responsibility is a two-way street. Hence right? the Consumer Finance Protection Board is a direct result of the exact sentiment you mentioned. The other the other thing that people forget when we talk about or or don't know, you know, Fannie and Freddie, they got into subprime. Yeah, they got into subprime. They petitioned Ofeo late 05 because they were losing so much market share to Wall Street. Hey, the subprime is where the growth is. All our business is going away. If you don't let us compete with them in the subprime space, we're not going to have any business. So they jumped in around 06 just as the market was topping. The right. timing couldn't have been better. And that's why their losses were, were so bad. But that's actually fascinating because you know there are forces in the government that wanted to see the private label Wall Street market take over Fannie and Freddie's market share. And there was a big change in around, I think it went into effect around 01 or 02, that allowed these Wall Street created mortgage-backed securities that just got AAA ratings to be treated the same way for capital purposes as Fannie and Freddie-backed securities. The two things are obviously totally different. One is a creation of the credit rating agency process, the other actually had two companies standing behind them saying, we'll pay if the homeowner can't. Plus the United States government behind those two companies. (laughs) Right. But the banking lobby got them treated the same way for capital purposes, and that's what unleashed the craze of subprime lending. So let's use that as a leaping off point to look at some of the columns you have written. And on the rating agencies um, subject, you wrote, if everyone hates the credit rating agencies, why won't anyone enforce Dodd-Frank provisions to dethrone them? So I have to ask you, what are the provisions and why has that not happened? Well, some of it has in limited ways. The SEC is trying, uh, 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 but very ineffectively. Um, the main thing that was supposed to happen and the big issue is the way credit rating agencies have been enshrined in regulations, making mm-hmm. them making them critical arbiters. And the idea in Dodd-Frank was we were going to take them out of all the regulatory framework. And that is not happening. People have basically admitted it's really difficult. It's really hard to do. And part of the problem is that institutional 
institutional investors love being able to blame the credit rating agencies when it all goes wrong. And so they don't necessarily, they kind of like being able to say, but the credit rating agencies said it was so. Um, so there are a lot of forces against any any reform. And the clearest way you can see that is if you n- remember that the credit rating agencies were already reformed before the financial crisis in the wake of Enron. When they famously rated Enron's debt investment grade up until two days before its collapse, there was a huge outcry about the credit rating agencies. And in 2006, Congress passed the Credit Rating Agency Reform Act. So did you know that heading into the financial crisis, the credit rating agencies had already been reformed? And once, once you know that, you realize why nothing is happening. If people want to find your work, where would they track you down? Mainly through Vanity Fair, but I guess you can um, Google me. You can buy my books on Amazon if you're interested. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and hang around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting. Uh, Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz, where I tweet a little more than once a week or so. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast portion of the show. This is where we uh, take off our shoes and kick back a little bit. I'm literally taking my shoes off. Bethany, thank you so much for doing this. This is really quite interesting stuff. You and I have an interest in a lot of similar wonky, tedious, boring stuff. <laughs> That's true. The the Dick Fold thing. So did you know that about Dick I Fold? I did not know that story. There was a Bloomberg article on it, and I've had this conversation with Countless people. They're like, no, no, if he was offered money by Buffett, he would have had to take it. Not only was he offered money by Buffett, he was offered more money than uh, a better deal than what ultimately, now, six months later, obviously, was a much uglier situation after following the collapse of Lehman Brothers. But um, talk talk about reality distortion field and being a salesman and Surrounding yourself with people who are afraid to say no to you. Right. That's a, this is a not uncommon set of circumstances. No, except now, which I think is almost worse. If you talk to any leader, they're going to tell you that they surround themselves with people who challenge them and that they really like being challenged. And as soon as I hear that, my BS meter goes off because I know it's not true. Nobody likes being challenged. The trick is to do it anyway. So if I hear an honest leader, they say, I really hate being challenged, but I make myself undergo it anyway. Now that's honesty. The other, If you If you've read some of the Bridgewater stuff, uh-huh. what, what Dalio has created in terms of, some people have called it a cult, I think that goes too far, but it's a really interesting culture where, so there's another book, um, Originals by Adam Grant that I'm just starting, where he references how like a junior analyst sends an email to Dalio, like screaming at him essentially saying, we told you this was a really important presentation and you muffed it and you came in unprepared and you were unfocused and that's the culture. And it makes them, it's not a coincidence that they've become the right. biggest hedge fund in the world. It would be very hard to execute, but it's a powerful idea. Uh, yeah, very hard to execute. So so let's talk about some other things that are a little hard to execute mm-hmm. or easy to execute. What One of the columns of yours that I really liked, psst, want to buy the New Jersey Turnpike, privatization and its discontent. And I don't know if that's your subhead or mine, but I just remember that column being fascinated. And you see this for cash-strapped states and municipalities around the country selling these really impossible-to-replace things to the private sector. 
And these are disasters, aren't they? Well, we did it in Chicago, right? And the problem is, if you really actually did take the money and invest it as a city and do what you were supposed to do with it, then maybe at least financially for the city, it wouldn't be such a problem. But all you're doing is getting rid of your long-term assets in exchange for a quick cash infusion, right? right. And so it ends up being a complete disaster because then the assets are gone and the money's gone. And all it does is bridge a short-term gap instead of funding anything for the future. And then and there are a lot of questions about how well the private owners um, actually do. Horror these stories with do. enforcement stories, of, right? of traffic tickets and and parking tickets and raising rates and everything. And right. Real real horror stories about, about how it works. Um, and there was quite a push a few years ago for the banks to get more into this business. And everybody was talking about setting up an infrastructure fund. So it'll be interesting to see how it pans out if we've got another economic downturn. It, it, it won't do well. Uh, the other title I really liked, Squid Love. Why aren't clients fleeing Goldman Sachs? Right. It's a great title, but the point it raises, why didn't clients flee Goldman Sachs? Well, you could have two different interpretations. One could be that clients didn't care, even though the rest of us did. When you say didn't care, didn't care about them taking the other side did, of trades? Didn't and... care about how Goldman behaved in the financial crisis when, I think by any characterization, they looked out for their own interest and didn't look out for their client interest. Isn't that a fact. given? Doesn't everyone assume, hey, that's what they're doing? I know who well, I'm in bed with. Well, look, in, Goldman, in Goldman's defense, they say that's the trading business and right. the clients knew what they were doing. But Goldman has always said is one of its 10 principles. I think the number one principle is our clients' interests come first. They don't say our clients' interests come first in our investment banking business. They they, 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 they come way down the list in every other business. And so it's hypocrisy, right? I think That's, they mean their the, clients' interest in principal payments come right. first. Until we get those payments, we just can't even chat with them. That's really funny. It's, uh, uh, but but, the, but Goldman has done fine in the years since the yeah, crisis. They're still, at the top of, still at the top of the M&A leagues. They haven't lost client yep. business at all. And I think if my... There's no way to know what the answer to that is. My guess would be that clients still want what they perceive as the best advice. They still think Goldman is the best, and they're willing to take the the, the whatever risks come with that. My, the, I think the other part of it is that it's not like any investment bank came out of the crisis well, right? right? So it's not like you have the super Goldman who did perfectly and behaved beautifully during the crisis. You don't. Everybody you, you behaved badly. You have Wells Fargo as as a, a survivor did really well, and you had J.P. Morgan right. did, but better not than among most. the top investment banks. Right. So right. Morgan. Stanley, Merrill Lynch. Nope, nope. I mean, far worse behavior than right. Goldman. Stearns, so, nope. Right. You go down that whole list. UBS and Credit Suisse following right. shortly after the crisis. The Buffett quote that when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. Suddenly, a lot of warts that were not seen previously to the crisis were all revealed, and you have to think no one would have noticed but for the crisis. Right. So if a client were going to leave Goldman Sachs after the crisis, they would have had to go somewhere else. Where is that somewhere else? Deutsche Bank. Royal <laughs> Bank of Scotland. They do great work. It's it's well, so in other words, there there are no options and as long as you're dealing with a Sharpie, they might as well be your Sharpie. Right. Well, and you do have um, a bunch of independent investment banks, boutique investment banks that have been set up, particularly in recent years, some of them populated by ex-Goldman bankers. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But there is you know, there is some truth to the idea that a global client base, they want financing when they come to you for a deal. They want the whole package mm-hmm. that a big bank like Goldman can offer. They don't want a boutique. And you can't get that with a boutique. I've also noticed that there have been a number of companies seated by it's it's like when there's a supernova and a star, all that stardust eventually becomes another star. When AIG b- blew up, 
There's a whole bunch of other little companies, including, I think it's called Pure, coincidentally, an insurance company that's trying to compete with Chubb on the high end for residential real estate insurance, ex-AIG guy. So following, and I think that began long before the crisis, but it's fascinating how every time there's a disaster, you have good people, you have less than good people, and some of the good people ultimately end up... Uh, well, there have been a couple of stories that have been interesting, one tracking follow, follow, former Drexel people, another tracking former Enron people, oh, really? a lot of whom have gone on to do really interesting things. I mean, circling back to Enron, to me, the, the, that company is just such a tragedy. There were a lot of good ideas and a right. lot of brilliant people. They just couldn't wait for the ideas to actually produce revenue, so they accelerated the revenue through ways both legitimate but sketchy and totally illegitimate, and that's so why if, the thing am blew I understanding up you correctly you're saying there were a lot of really good ideas it's just a shame it was all a fraud <laughs> Is, well, is that Enron, what you're actually saying? I'm sort of saying that, except Enron, you know, was a fraud and very, it was a legal fraud. A lot of what they did technically met the letter of right. the law. It was legal. So it's still a very complicated scam. Mm -hmm. But but yes, there were. The ideas were good. It's just that they couldn't wait to show revenue and profits. So they came up with scammy ways to make it look like they were producing right. more profits than they were. But the ideas and the people who were there, there are a lot of good people. I, I'm fond of saying one of the biggest problems in finance is that no one's willing to wait to get rich slowly. And it's really- Oh, I love that line. Every time people run into trouble, I've, I've met and worked with and been on the other sides of discussions with people who are just incredibly talented salespeople. And invariably, some of these guys end up getting into trouble. And it's almost always guys. And it's the question is always, all you had to do is put your head down and, and be a reasonable human and not do really stupid, ethically dubious, legally questionable things, and eventually you become very wealthy. What, what is so challenging about that? I don't know. I've been thinking a lot lately about the difference between being smart and wise, being wise. And I think there's a lot of smarts out there, but there's not a lot of wisdom. So how, many, how much time do we have left? So in the last few minutes we have, let me get to some of my favorite questions that I ask for uh, of all my guests. Okay. Um, and I have, I have us with, uh, oh, you're right about the time. Um, so let's talk a little bit about mentors. Any mentors stand out in your mind? I think I'd have to say Joe No Sarah is the is Clearly. the is is probably and John Huey too who ran mm -hmm. Fortune magazine when I got there. I still remember John pulling calling a big meeting of Fortune right when I'd started and basically saying if you don't know what you're doing, there's no place for you here at this magazine. And I was like, I don't have a clue. <laughs> I'm not going to last long here. And this this is my my new job. <laughs> um, but Joe too has always been really good both on the big picture. He's the one who encouraged me to write the Enron book, but also really good at sorting through ideas because I have a lot of ideas and I need someone to say this one sucks go for this one so let's talk about books since you mentioned what, what are some of your favorite books fiction or nonfiction? let's see um, okay so I'm a total sucker for the Lord of the Rings Okay, I, I read them all years ago. Loved them. One of the, one of the best the series ever. Through the whole yeah, ride. I've been thinking about it again. And I actually am now. I have enough distance between the movies that I'm willing to watch the first three movies again. Yeah. The uh, The Hobbit. The Hobbit. Yeah. Not as not as great as the first three Lord of the Rings. No, movies. no, no, no. But the Lord of the Rings is absolutely amazing. Very Ga geeky. Ga Ga Game of Thrones is 
awesome. I haven't been able to watch the TV show because I found the book so stressful. Um, on, a more, <laughs> on, on a more serious front, um, Middlemarch, obviously amazing. I love biographies. There's a great biography of Colette that really made me think about called Secrets of the, Fresh, of the Flesh that really made me think differently about how biographies can be done. But I think life stories Colette, are just... Secrets of the Flesh. Yes. But huh. I think I think stories about fascinating people that explore the nuances of their lives, particularly fascinating, controversial people, uh-huh. are, are just great. And then I loved um, recently All the Light We Cannot See. I think that's one of the most beautiful books, um, although deeply sad books that I've read in a long mm-hmm. time. I gave um, one of the people in my office the Wright Brothers book for the holidays, and he raved about he it. Raved. I so now I have it. to Mac- – everything McCullough writes is great, but yep. – uh, now I have to. I gave it as a gift. Now I actually have to. Uh, now you have to go read it. Um, so millennials, you've been doing this for a couple of years. If a millennial comes to you and says, "Hey, I want to uh, get into your field," what sort of advice would you give either a recent college graduate or a millennial? Seriously, no. <laughs> what what I, what I actually say is that you you have to be really committed to this, and you can't expect it to be something where there's a set career path. And there never really has been, right? You found your way into sure. doing this in a totally different way. I did. Some people go to journalism school and train to be journalists all their life. So it always has been a flexible career path, but now so that more than ever, right? We don't know where our industry is going. It's not like there's well, you start on the bottom rung here and then you get a job here. It's it's all made up. All bets are off. Um, so I think you have to have a real passion to want to tell stories and learn things and be curious and and not to and to be willing to work hard. To say, to say the least. And our final question that I ask everybody: What is it that you wish you knew about investing, companies, journalism? What is it that you wish you knew twenty years ago that you know today? I think I'd wish I'd known I think I wish I'd known how to be more skeptical and I still sometimes think I should be more skeptical even than I am. Not only do people not always tell the truth, but sometimes people don't even know that they're not telling the truth. And so I wish I knew to listen more and really challenge things that don't appear to that don't make sense. And you know what? Sometimes you're an idiot because you just missed something somebody said and you didn't understand and you actually didn't get it. But sometimes if you're really willing to say that that doesn't make sense to me. Can you repeat that? You'll really learn something. And I I wish I were better at that than I am. That's quite fascinating. For those of you who have enjoyed uh, this conversation, be sure and check out Bethany's various books. You can look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes and see the other 80 or so conversations we've had. Uh, Be sure and Check out my daily column. I already said that, so I don't need to say that again. Um, I want to thank Mike Batnick, my head of research, for helping me um, do the deep dive into this, as well as Charlie Vollmer, who's about to kick me out of the studio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.